This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. As the name suggests... It's an England football supporters podcast. My name's Russell Osborne, and this is a bit of a special episode. One that I'm quite proud of. One that I've put a fair bit of research into. Now, I didn't go to university, so I guess this is the closest I'll come to a dissertation. Firstly, though, I'm going to give a spoiler alert. I'm going to spend the length of this podcast talking about a nil-nil draw. Bear with me though. Let me take you back to 1872. Queen Victoria was monarch. The Prime Minister was Liberal, William Ewart Gladstone. The Licenses Act establishes licenses for public houses and limits drinking hours. And the first ever FA Cup final was played between the Wanderers and the Royal Engineers. November of that year, 147 years ago, in a cricket field, in Glasgow, Scotland, saw the very first international world football match, as acknowledged by FIFA. A match that no one currently walking this planet will have ever witnessed. Now in the past, you may know we've done our lookbacks on certain games, and with England's 1,000th match on the horizon, due to be played against Montenegro on the 14th of November at Wembley Stadium, I thought it'd be interesting to delve into the history of England's very first match. I can't 100% guarantee the factualities of this game, as it's all taken from various sources and research I've been doing since January of this year. And you thought I just threw this podcast together. Now, to my surprise, the FA don't have an official England historian. I did ask them. So hopefully I've got more facts than myths and I'll try and acknowledge the sources where I can. Scotland were the opposition and it took place on the 30th of November 1872. Now initially I began reading and researching, as you do, from Wikipedia where I found out that this actually wasn't the first match between the two nations. Five matches were played between the two, all in England between March 1870 and February 1872. However, these weren't recorded as official matches, more representative football matches, as those representing Scotland were generally not Scottish, more those with Scottish connections, picked from the London area. Although it does read that Scottish players were invited, only one of them accepted and played, Robert Smith of Queen's Park. Now, the games were played at the Oval Cricket Ground in Kennington, London, with England winning three and there being two draws. It then became apparent that the Scottish public resented the fact that there wasn't any real player representation from north of the border. The then Football Association Secretary, Charles Alcock, followed this up, writing in the Scotsman newspaper that the responsibility lay with the people of Scotland to put a team together and then proposed another match with the Scottish team 
drawn from players from Scotland and added that the match will be played in the north of England. He didn't receive a reply, as it seems that between the two nations, the game had slightly different codes of play. It was also the fact that Scotland at the time didn't have a National Football Association to sanction such a match. So it was then Queen's Park, Scotland's leading club of the time, who took up the challenge, thanks to a couple of their players, Robert Gardner and David Wotherspoon. The FA's meeting minutes of the 3rd of October 1872 stated, In order to further the interests of the association in Scotland, it was decided that during the current season, a team should be sent to Glasgow to play a match versus Scotland. It was Wotherspoon who replied, writing via the Scotsman newspaper, that the challenge had been accepted. The match was then scheduled for the 30th of November, Coincidentally, St Andrew's Day, the venue chosen as West of Scotland Cricket Club in Hamilton Crescent, Partick in Glasgow. So in the name of research, a trip to Glasgow was in order. Good morning ladies and gentlemen and welcome on board your EasyJet flight. Tonight departing for Glasgow with a flight time of just under one hour. So an hour later I've arrived north of the border to Glasgow. Well, the weather, a little drizzly. But my first stop is Hamden Park and the Scottish Football Museum. My name is Richard McBrearty. I'm curator of the Scottish Football Museum at Hamden Park in Glasgow. So we just walked in through the doors of the, the museum into the first history gallery and the first thing you see is a fence with kind of characters looking in through the fence and there's posters um, which introduces what the exhibit's about and it's the first international match, Scotland v England. Association of Football really starts in, in Glasgow uh, from a Scottish perspective, the formation of Queen's Park FC in 1867. For five whole years, Queen's Park were really struggling to get other clubs to play association football. Um, the other clubs were really rugby football clubs in the Glasgow area. So this is really probably the first really big game um, north of the border. When England comes north to play Scotland in the first international match. So we felt when the museum opened that we should have this as a really major exhibit um, to, to really... Give, give people that impression about the importance of this game. We refer to it as a football explosion. In, in the aftermath of the first international match, you really start to see a huge number of clubs starting to form within a short period of time in the back of that, that international match. And within a few months of uh, St Andrews 1872, you have the Scottish FA being formed and you have the Scottish Cup competition being instituted as well. Um, and football really starts to organise in a meaningful way in Scotland. And we see that one of these posters on the wall is England versus Scotland, west of Scotland cricket ground. Now, I'm talking to you here at Hamden Park, home of Scottish football. Why was it at west of Scotland cricket ground? It gives you an idea about how um, rudimentary football was in Glasgow in the early 1870s, that, that Queen's Park, who were the, really the team that was leading association football in Scotland at that time, there were only maybe about another 10 or so clubs uh, round about the Glasgow area that played association football, but they all played on public parks. So you'd have to go early uh, in the afternoon, maybe even in the morning, to get an area of the public park. You'd stake it out um, to say, this is, we're playing on this, this area of the park today to stop other clubs from coming in and, 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 and stealing the spot. And anybody could wander up to the edge of the field and watch the game. Now, when it comes to this match here, when England are coming up north to play in this, this, this international match, Queen's Park, who organised the game on behalf of Scotland, because the Scottish FA didn't exist at that time, 
they know that they can't have it on a public park. They've got to raise money because they have to pay for the England team. There's expenses, the train fares. There's a banquet to be held after the match as well. So they have to raise money to pay and even things like advertisements, posters um, to advertise the game. So this has to be paid for. And the main way of doing that back then was obviously income from admission into into the arena. They don't have a, a, a football ground themselves that's enclosed with a fence around it. So anybody could wander up. So they look around to other venues in Glasgow. Initially, actually, it was a rugby ground, uh, Glasgow Academicals ground which was going to be used, certainly offered by Glasgow Academicals. And, and, and an interesting thing as well, the first international match of 1872 effectively was a club side, Queen's Park of the England. Um, all 11 players from Scotland were members of the club. But Glasgow Aki's players, although they were rugby players, Glasgow Aki's players actually trained with Queen's Park players. And it was mooted that some of the Glasgow Aki's players may well have represented Scotland in that international match and changed codes for the purpose of the game. Okay. I think part of the reason for that was that maybe Queen's Park were a bit concerned that Obviously, it was a strong England team that were coming up. Um, the, the FA had a, a, a ability to select from quite a number of clubs, particularly in and around the London area, but even to an extent further afield. Whereas Queen's Park didn't have that benefit. Uh, the early clubs playing association football actually maybe weren't as well organised, weren't as skilled in the game. Um, and, and Queen's Park really felt that they could certainly put forward a lot of players. But, but I think there was still a concern that, that having just their own players might not be enough. And so they did generally look to uh, Glasgow Ackies as the other big kind of football club, albeit a rugby football club in the city at that time. But it never happens. We don't know why they train together. But certainly when it comes to the first international match, it's, it's, it's basically a Queen's Park team, or the membership of the Queen's Park team um, that, that play in that match. But they actually move, they decide to have the West Scotland Cricket Ground as the venue for the match because it's an enclosed ground, big open space to, to, to put down the football field. But more importantly, or almost importantly, they've got a, a fence going all the way around the, the perimeter of the, the sports arena. And that means that you have to pay to get in and they charge a shilling per person. The counts vary. It's either 2,500 or 4,000 people, according to different newspapers. But a good body of people turn up and pay a shilling each to get in. Queen's Park make a small profit. They pay off all the debts. They pay all the expenses of the England team as well. And in the back of that, they then start to think, well, we should really have our own ground because we could then organise uh, these matches, Scottish Cup finals as well as international matches, uh, and help grow the sport. Um, and that's what happens. First Hamden Park opens officially, I think, on the 25th of October, 1873, less than a year after that, that first international match. Um, you'll also see over here the, um, the sketch and the, the graphic newspaper. That's, we've got a couple in the uh, collection. Yeah. So is that an, an original one? That's an original one as well, but it's been coloured in. Someone's taken it and then it, the originals were all black and white. Right. But this has just been decorated um, from someone. Gives it a little bit more depth as well, being in colour. It does a little bit, yeah. There's also a match ticket, the only one that, that we know survived um, from the first international match from 1872. Wow. What's remarkable, I think, is that within a short period of time from Queen's Park being formed, to then playing that first match in 1868, only four years after 1868, you've got this first international match. In 1868, Queens Park had played 20 aside. Wow. Uh, then play 15 aside, then play 10 aside, then play 14 aside. So the game is, is very much a hybrid game. It's, it's, it's evolving. From playing 20 aside in 1868, Robert Gardner then is, is organising the first Scotland team, 11 aside goalkeepers, and, and trying to look at a playing style to try and match a stronger opponent because England had far more teams in operation at that time so Charles Alcock and the FA committee could, could really select a lot of 
different players um, and, and pick the best. But the downside to that really was that we're relative strangers. They weren't coming together on a regular basis to play together as a team. Although many of the London players would have known each other, obviously, from playing against each other. When Queen's Park play that first international match, the one thing they've got going for them is that they're effectively a team. So they play on a regular basis, they, they, they work in tactics. They'd already played that important match earlier in the year in the FA Cup semi-final against the Wanderers in accounts. Uh, uh, relating to that game, giving them a lot of credit because they were expected to get really defeated by a really significant team at that time in the Wanderers who would go on to win their first ever FA Cup. Uh, Queen's Park managed to get a draw uh, out of that match and have to then return to Glasgow. They can't stay for a replay yeah. and then scratch the, the, the match. But in that match, it does talk about the, the, the Queen's Park team playing together in pairs and playing passes, long passes from the, from the defenders up to the forward line. And that carries on, in, I think, into the first international match. The Glasgow Herald newspaper talks about the respective weight of the players, and that's significant. They say that the, the England team on average are two stones heavier than the Scottish players because the, the size and weight of the association player in 1872 is significant because it was a more physical game than even we have today, where you were perfectly allowed to use yeah, charging tactics to, to win possession of the ball. But also it's a, a game of speed and skill. Dribbling was a very important uh, early tactic. The Queen's Park players representing Scotland, there's, I think, a general realisation that if they try and play against bigger, faster, more powerful opponents at that type of game, they won't succeed. Um, so you can see from the, the, the graphic newspaper, the middle sketch, you can see the tactic there where you've got two players for, for Scotland coming together yeah. to tackle uh, and try and win possession of the ball against a stronger, taller England player. And that's, from a Scottish perspective, is where a, a style of game starts to emerge, which is what we call the short passing game, which becomes a really important tactic in Scotland. What a great insight there. Plenty to see at Hamden if you get the chance. Now you join me now as I've sat down at the side of the River Clyde, at the Riverside Museum, aside the tall ship, the Glen Lee of Glasgow, just for a spot of lunch. I've got to cross the Clyde very soon, as my next stop is Hamilton Crescent and the West of Scotland Cricket Club. My name's John Thompson. Um, I've been involved with West of Scotland Cricket Club really since about 1960 when I joined as a, as a minor cricketer and then gradually worked my way up through all the teams. I've played for all the teams, I've captained all of the teams, I've been on the board of directors which is a posh name for the committee for goodness sake it must be about 25 years and I've been chairman for nine years and at the moment they're giving me the grandiose title of ground convener. I'm not quite sure how I ended up doing that, but I enjoy doing it and what we want to do is make sure that we have a quality ground, not just for cricket, but we it's used for community things as well. The school across there use it, they have their sports day, etc. And we try and get the community as involved as, as possible. So that's the whole point of this. But a lot of people don't realise this ground's here and they don't realise how famous it is. We are... And in the west of Scotland, aren't we? You're in the west of Scotland, that's correct. And it's a cricket field surrounded by sort of sandstone buildings, would that be? Yeah, Glasgow's very much like that. I mean, you, you, a lot of tenement properties which are either red sandstone or grey sandstone. This is actually a sort of conservation area because of some of the types of buildings that they have. The ground actually, up until 30 years ago, was bigger than it is now. Um, it went right down to what's Partick Borough Hall. In, in that street there. And that looks like a relatively old building. Oh, that's probably way back in the sort of 1800s, I would imagine. 
and it sort of dominates. That's right. I mean, it's in the days when you had Partick District and you had Govan District and all these other districts in Glasgow, and they obviously ran the the roost from there, etc. So that there's a lot of these sort of buildings around the place, but we we had all of the ground there, and I think it was a way back in the sort of late seventies we had financial problems, so we had to sell the bottom part of the ground, and these flats were were built there. Oh, I see. It makes the ground a wee bit smaller, but it still fits into an international standing. The last international we had here was in 2004, Scotland versus Pakistan, and it was a brilliant day. There must have been about four or 5,000 in here. Which is a similar amount, by all accounts, to the very first game in 1872. Now, that's a coincidence, isn't it? The, the talk is, from, from the research that I've done is there were about 4,000 people mm-hmm. to watch Scotland against England Yes, on this cricket ground. What would have been interesting then, and I'm not quite sure about this, you maybe know, is whether there were, I don't mean proper stands, but there must have been some sort of terracings and various things like that for people to, to watch the game from, but, but perhaps not. Well, from what, what I can gather <coughs> is literally the, the area was staked out, maybe with some rope, mm-hmm. um, and I can see... At the side of the, the pitch, mm-hmm. it banks up slightly, so I can only imagine that maybe people stood on the banks to get a better view. Well, very much so, especially around the back there. I mean, that's a great place where people watch cricket now, etc. Right. Because you've got the angle and you get a really good view of it, etc. Okay. I mean, what used to happen here in the sort of twenties and thirties, the Rangers supporters would support Rangers at Ibrooks during the winter. And a lot of them would come across and watch West of Scotland Cricket Club play cricket in the oh, summer. Really? And, I mean, I've seen photographs. I mean, there used to be big doors there to get in, etc. And I've seen them five or six queued standing watching the game. And you maybe had a couple of thousand here to watch cricket. We're sitting in the pavilion. That's right. Which gives you a nice elevated view over the... Uh the club itself was, was founded in 1862 and this pavilion I would suspect was probably built maybe just at the turn of the century into the 1900s etc I mean it's been a great pavilion but it's one of these things nowadays with modern life it's trying to keep it and maintain it is very very difficult but we do our best I don't suppose you know what way the the pitch would have gone, do you? I don't. Somebody asked me that a couple of years ago, and we never, we never really found out. I have in my mind, and I don't know why, that it was that way. If you've got Peel Street running up one side, and you've got Fortress Street running up the other side, it would run in a straight line between the two. So the goals would be on the goals Peel would Street. be on Peel Street and Fortress Street. But don't take that as red, because I'm not absolutely sure about that. Yeah. So as we come out of the, the pavilion and walk round to the side, and there it is, a plaque just high up on the wall. And it says, The world's first international football match was played between Scotland and England at the West of Scotland Cricket Ground, Hamilton Crescent, Glasgow, on St Andrew's Day, the 30th of November, 1872. And there's the, the Scotland Crest. And the FA is England Crest, and presented by Mr John C. McGinn, President of the Scottish Football Association, 30th of November 2002. You think that it's taken, what is that, 2002 less 1872, 130 years for, for this venue to be recognised, which, which is good that it has been, but it's a shame that it's taken so long. 
So we're taking a stroll around the ground here at the moment and we've made our way down to where the Partick Hall is behind us. The cricket boards are also surrounding the pitch and the other end as I look towards the pavilion and in the centre they've got the covers for the wickets and those sandstone buildings all around the cricket ground. Sort of a dusty brown sort of colour and the scoreboard in one corner where it all banks up to one side. There's a school up at the top and some new build flats as well. Now I can't resist. I'm going to walk closer to the middle to where the current wicket is. Which is more or less the centre of the pitch. This is where Cuthbert Ottaway, Arnold Kirky Smith and 20 others would have took to the field representing their countries in the first international Looking around, there would have been spectators everywhere. The pitch, as it is at the moment, is lush and green. Flat, too. Don't think it would have been much like that 147 years ago. The weather then had been wet leading up to the game. Now it's been a real pleasure to come up here and learn more about this game. So my thanks go to John Thompson here and Richard McBrarty back at the Hamden Museum have both looked after me. In 2009, Michael Southwick wrote a book about England's first captain, Cuthbert Ottaway. Now we'll speak more about him later in the podcast. But the book also mentions that most of the England team travelled up to Glasgow the day before the game and enjoyed an evening's entertainment at the Carrick's Royal Hotel. They were joined the following morning by Charles Alcock and any remaining players. As we heard from Richard McBrarty at the Hampden Park Museum, he mentioned that all the Scottish players came from the same Queen's Park club, which appears to be factually correct, but according to Michael Southwick's book, some were more registered to Queen's Park and were effectively on loan elsewhere. For example, Scotland's back, William Kerr, is listed as representing Granville, and the Smith brothers, James and Robert represented South Norwood. Chris Freddy is an author of the Complete World Cup Book 2006, Footballers' Haircuts and various other publications. His research also backs this up. England's players came from nine different sides and were picked by Charles Alcock, who we've already mentioned. He didn't play, but reading on a BBC article he did run one of the lines. Now, Scotland wore blue jerseys, not because that was the colour chosen, but because that was the then current colour of Queen's Park, but with just a white rampant lion badge attached. Although there are some sources that state a thistle was embroidered on, as it had previously been an emblem in an 1871 rugby international. Although Queen's Park, and those with the knowledge will know, they now play in black and white hoops. England, according to the website englandfootballonline.com, wore white woollen jerseys with a three lion's crest stitched into it with a red crown above. Whether all players' shirts were exactly the same is unknown as they may have just bought their own kit with the colours instructed. As was the case with some later games, where players have been documented as playing in their club side's colours, but with England crests sewn into the left breast. Thankfully, 
one of the shirts from that first game still survives to this day. That worn by Arnold Kirky Smith, who captained Oxford University in the 1873 FA Cup final. His England shirt from that day was sold at auction in 1998 for £21,000. And the next stop on this journey is a visit to Manchester's National Football Museum, where they have that very shirt on show. Hello, uh, my name's Tim Ashmore, and I'm one of the exhibition producers at the National Football Museum. So we're here at, at the National Football Museum. As you come into the almost the main entrance, there is the, the shirt from the very first international Scotland against England in 1872. What can you tell us about that shirt that you know? Well, just in terms of context of the museum, it's the first of our 11 objects that talk you through kind of the development of football over the ages. So it starts with that and it ends up with the Didier Drogba shirt from uh, 2012. So it's in kind of stark contrast to uh, the Chelsea shirt. It's not made out of polyester and it's not festooned with uh, sponsors and manufacturers' logos. It's very, very simple. We think it's cotton shirt. It's white, kind of faded to a cream colour and it's got an embroidered three lions crest on even the very earliest England shirts uh, featured the three lions It's got the the crown on the top as well which we don't see anymore No, we don't, I think that uh, dropped out of favour in the 20s or 30s Um, I think it's still used on cricket crests, like England cricket I'm not a big cricket fan but I I believe I've seen it recently but yeah, the football side of things, they dropped it uh, before the Second World War And in the centre of the shirt there's like a, a diamond pattern. Do they all have that, do we know, or is that just this particular one? We don't know. Um, the illustration that has been reprinted several times from that match uh, doesn't detail the shirts very well. You can see the crest on it, but you can't see this kind of pa- uh, diamond pattern. It's almost like an Umbro logo uh, turned 90 degrees on its side, but it predates Umbro by 50 years or so, so it's nothing to do with that. Uh, we think it's just a, a decoration and we, we imagine that all players' shirts in that match were actually the same. And how did the, the National Football Museum come about presenting it as showing this shirt? It's one of the earliest items from our collection. Um, it actually predates the museum. It was co- collected by a journalist called Harry Langton who collected lots of uh, football memorabilia from all over the world of uh, various values and shapes and sizes, and that's one of the pieces in his collection. He uh, acquired it at auction, I believe, along with Kirk Smith's cap from the same game. Which is what we're standing right next to now, which is... Um, I've seen diagrams or pictures, sketches of the that first game, and Scotland wore it's like a, a, a dome cowled hat, and, and England are wearing like a just a, a small cap with no peak almost it's a, a golden and red affair and that came with the same the same lot yeah I, I believe so um, there were, as far as we can tell there were no rules about kit in general back then there were very few um, so it was kind of it was arranged that Scotland would wear this navy blue and England would wear white shirts the Scotland team also said that they would wear these blue cowls but there's no mention of England wearing anything kind of uniform similar so we imagine that the players would just wear their regular kit that they've normally wear for whichever team they normally represented and uh, along with the England the white England shirt with the three lions crest back to the match it was refereed by a Scotsman William Key 
The game itself was scheduled for a 2pm kickoff, but was delayed by 20 minutes as its widely reported 4,000 spectators squeezed into the ground, each paying a shilling, which was the same price charged by the English FA for the first FA Cup final. Now I've spoken with author Chris Freddy. He shared some of his research on the same game with me. He had found that the attendance figure varied on what newspaper you read at the time. The graphic quoted 2,500 and 5,000. McKinley's A to Z, 3,500. Huddersfield Chronicle, 5,000. But it was the Scotsman who mentioned 4,000, which is probably why that is the quoted figure. The pitch was wet and heavy following the rain that Glasgow had endured for the previous three days. The morning of the game was drizzly, but some sunshine eventually peeked through come kickoff. In fact, it's noted that the pitch had a slight slope, and according to the website englandstats.com, Scotland won the toss and selected the northern goal, thereby gaining the advantage of the slight elevation of the field. Still amazes me that the information of who won the toss is available for a game of this age. England's starting lineup consisted of the following players. Goalkeeper, Robert Barker, Hertfordshire Rangers. A civil engineer and later served as chief assistant engineer to the London, Chatham and Dover Railway and South Eastern Railway. Back, Ernest Greenow, Notts County. Became proprietor of the Field Mill at Mansfield, which eventually became the new home of Mansfield Town in 1916. Halfback, Reginald de Courtney Welsh, Wanderers. He appeared for England again in 1874, but this time in goal. He won two FA Cup winners medals and he was an army tutor between 1883 and 1895. Forward, Frederick Chapel, Oxford University. Frederick was known Frederick Chapel at the time of game number one, but a year later changed his name to Frederick Madison following his marriage to composer Adela Madison. Frederick also played a part in one of the earlier unofficial games between England and Scotland, the third game, where he appeared for Scotland under the guise of F. McLean. Forward, William John Maynard, 1st Surrey Rifles, whose son, Alfred, represented England at Rugby Union. Forward, John Brockbank, Cambridge University, an actor by profession. Forward, Charles Clegg, Sheffield Wednesday. He led an interesting life, becoming the first man to be honoured for services to football, knighted and became Sir Charles Clegg in 1927. It was reported that after the first game, he announced that he found the whole experience extremely distasteful, complaining that the southern snobs wouldn't talk to him on the train journey up to Glasgow or pass to him out on the pitch. Forward, Arnold Kirky Smith, Oxford University. Another player, like Frederick Chappell, who represented Scotland in one of those unofficial games before game number one. Forward, Cuthbert Ottaway, Oxford University, Old Etonians. A player who was well adapted at various other sports. Cricket for Middlesex represented Oxford University at real tennis and athletics. It was this game against Scotland 
that put him into the record books, as he's listed as England's first ever captain. Forward, Charles John Chenery, Crystal Palace Club. Another cricketer, representing Surrey. He was the only player to play in the first three official England games. And finally, forward, Charles John Morris, Barnes. Was a member of the Stock Exchange and also served on the FA Committee between 1873 and 1877. Cuthbert Ottaway was the third great-grandfather of Brooke Hunter, and I'm very honoured to be joined by her, and she's speaking to me from Toronto in Canada. Brooke, hello there. Hi, Russell. It's my How pleasure. are you? I'm well, well, thank you. When I began this project, I was investigating the very first game, I came across Cuthbert and I thought, wow, could I really speak with a family member, a family descendant? I found you over there in Toronto. So thank you very much. Well, it's great fun, Russell. What could you tell us about Cuthbert? Well, he had one daughter who had one daughter who had one daughter who had me. From what I understand, he came from uh, a good family. A, a small family. His dad was the mayor of Dover in Kent, and he was an only child, so a very cloistered environment. And at school, being that being that level of athlete across that many sports, oh boy, would he have been popular, huh? Yes. He was captain of both the football team and the cricket team at Oxford, and cricket brought him to Canada to play. And while here, he met a woman. And in fact, she would have been quite young. And I, I can't imagine, although she was from a good family, I can't imagine that his family would have been particularly thrilled. Um, his, his uncle was Sir John Bridge, uh, at the time a very famous judge. In fact, he was the judge at the trial of Jack the Ripper. So Cuthbert ends up bringing this Canadian home and very sadly, while she was pregnant, he died of tuberculosis. He's only 27 yeah. years old, wasn't he? Yeah, he just such a young guy. And if I do say so, what a good-looking guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> the, what's interesting is that it was only through doing some genealogy that I even came across Cuthbert. There was no family lore that had been passed down because... He died while his daughter was uh, in the womb. She went on to marry a gentleman who founded something called Ontario Hydro, and he was knighted by the Queen for doing so. And so Sir Adam Beck was Cuthbert's uh, ultimate son-in-law. And Lillian Otway, Lady Beck, she was actually recently in, um, inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame in London, Ontario, for her equestrian pursuits. How did you find out that you were... Uh related to Cuthbert? It was a bit of luck because it was before the interweb and ancestry.com became part of genealogical research. And there was a book that someone had written about Sir Adam Beck uh, having founded Ontario Hydro. It referred to his wife and her mother. Once I got some last names, I was able to finally come across Ottawa. And then I just started researching. And once Ancestry.com came alive, wow, 
then I was able to connect all the dots. Now, since it was just a bunch of only children, I don't have a bunch of cousins to ever talk about Cuthbert with. So opportunities like this are fun. Did you realize the significance? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I went to my dad saying, you will never believe this. <laughs> You're in Canada. Is there any connection as to, to Cuthbert being that one trip to Canada and you being over there? Or is that just purely coincidence? I Really, that is just purely coincidence. And not only that, match he would have played where he met his future wife would have been in Hamilton. At the time, it was quite important and quite important socially, but just utter chance. I personally don't know a huge amount of cricket, but I do know that he played alongside a certain W.G. Grace, who is very highly regarded in the cricket world. I can't say that cricket isn't a huge sport in Canada now. I would suggest that at the end of the 19th century, really Canada was sort of a, an England wannabe, as, as, as many of the colonies were. However, we still have cricket pitches here used regularly. In the generations before me, cricket would have been a source of commonality and continues to be. But uh, I would say football has a far higher profile now that it has become the international phenomenon that it is. Cuthbert was a, an all-round sportsman. He won five blues at football, cricket, athletics, rackets and real tennis, which just goes to show you what the... Really? I wasn't aware of that. Oh, I'm going to have to brag to all my friends. That is fantastic. But he really was an all-round sportsman, wasn't he? Oh, indeed. And I would imagine he would have been uh, quite a leader. Like to be that good across that many sports, the level that he was playing, I can imagine how tragic it must have been felt when he died. He was just starting to practice as a lawyer. With that kind of sporting profile, he would have had connections across a, a broad array based on that generation. To be a sportsman and a lawyer as well is, is just an amazing feat. It's quite something, mind you. I, I suggest that back then connections played a far larger role in becoming a lawyer than perhaps intellect. Not to suggest that he didn't have the intellect. The players that have followed in his footsteps since, Bobby Moore, Gary Lineker, David Beckham, all captains of England, even the current captain of England, Harry Kane, I dare say none of those would have the spare time to, to <laughs> dedicate to any Studies. other job. The yep. studies, as you say, he passed away ever so young. There's quite a story behind his grave in London. Paul McKay, what a committed gentleman. He saw the state of Cuthbert's grave and was dismayed. He went on a mission to execute and mission to fundraise that was just so impressive. And obviously we contributed because it was just a privilege to have even been to have been asked to tell you the truth. What he managed to put in place is a brand new, almost a cenotaph, so that truly it's a place that you can visit and acknowledge his contribution to sport in uh, the nineteenth century. It, it really is what a fabulous thing Paul did. Yes, certainly Paul and various other members of the England supporters team fundraised he, as well he went far and wide it was so touching to see 
people that were interested in uh, English football, in history. And it, it just it was it was lovely. In 2009, there was a biography written about Cuthbert entitled England's First Football Captain. And it was written by Michael Southwick. And as you heard there with my conversation with Brooke, he took it upon himself alongside Paul McKay to restore Cuthbert's gravestone, which had been left in disrepair in London's Paddington Old Cemetery. Paul McKay, who at the time was a player for the England supporters football side, helped to raise funds for the new headstone. And it has to be said, he and members of the England Supporters Club done a lot of fundraising and played memorial games in his honour in 2013, all to help restore the name and image of England's very first captain. I also have to add that Paul has provided me with a lot of information about the ceremony, to which I am grateful. I took the opportunity to visit Northwest London. Here I am at the wrought iron gates of old Paddington Cemetery in London. Now the Arch of Wembley Stadium is only about a mile away from here. It's a bright, breezy English early spring afternoon. Daffodils are beginning to emerge and I'm on my way to find Cuthbert Ottaway's final resting place. And here he is, sitting under a tree, a marble-like stone, fallen pine cones around it. Kind of feel I should have bought a scarf or a, an English rose. But the headstone reads, in memory of Cuthbert John Ottaway, England's first football captain, 1872, an only child of James Cuthbert and Jane Ottaway, born July 19th. 1850 and died April 2nd 1878 Now, going back to that lineup, you may have noticed that there are a lot of forwards listed there. Eight, in fact. Football back then wasn't a defensive-minded game as we know it now to be. Formations were not really a thing. Scotland, perhaps a little more advanced. Theirs consisted of six forwards, two backs and two half-backs. Although, reading that England employed this system as three defenders were required for a ball to be played onside. The English system was virtually a ready-made offside trap. It's also stated that later in the game, goalkeeper Robert Barker swapped with William Maynard. Barker was initially chosen to go in goal as he was the biggest and slowest player in the side, and also had experience of playing rugby, so his handling of the ball would come in handy. He was 25 years old, and was the oldest player in the side, John Maynard being the youngest at 19. Overall, the side had an average age of 22. By chance, the Scottish goalkeeper, Bob Gardner, played outfield during the game, starting in goal, then swapping with a teammate. And I think it's only fair that we acknowledge the Scotland team from that day. Bob Gardner, the goalkeeper and also captain. William Kerr, Joe Taylor, James J. Thompson, James Smith, Robert Smith, Robert Leckie, Alex Rind, Billy McKinnon, 
Jamie Weir and David Wotherspoon. By all accounts, Scotland were the more organised team, based mainly on the fact that the majority of them all played for Queen's Park and knew each other. England, on the other hand, grew together as the game went on. The game itself, from what is documented, the Scots had a goal disallowed in the first half as the umpires deemed that the ball had cleared the tape. Back then, goals were more posts and a tape joining them rather than a crossbar that we know now. And there were no nets either, or VAR. The tape was again called into action late in the game as Scotland came closest to winning as Robert Leckie's shot landed on top of it. Following the match, the Scotsman newspaper stated the following. During the first half of the game, the English team did not work so well together. But in the second half, they left nothing to be desired in this respect. As with all newspapers, different ones have different angles covered. And the match report from the Glasgow Herald writes, Both sides were working hard and showing excellent play. The Englishmen had all the advantage of weight, their average being two stone heavier than Scotchmen, and they had the advantage of pace. The strong point of the home club was that they played excellently well together. Whilst down in London, a report the next day in Bell's Life in London and Sporting Chronicle said, The only thing which saved the Scottish team from defeat, considering the powerful forward play of England, was the magnificent defensive play and tactics shown by their backs, which was also taken advantage of by their forwards. It's noted that the game was played in a friendly manner, and there was a good atmosphere off the pitch too. And despite the large crowd, who were only held back by some rope, at no time did they spill onto the pitch. So there it was. The very first international football match ended goalless. Now you'd have thought there would be some sort of photographic evidence of the game, or the teams, with cameras of sorts having been used 50 or so years earlier. It's not as if it couldn't have been done. But it's reported that a photographer was approached, but neither side could guarantee how many prints would be ordered. So the photographer decided it wasn't worth his or her while. So all there appears to be are a lot of black and white or colourised artist impressions or sketches from the event. These appear to have been done by a William Ralston, a Scottish designer at the time and he's even depicted a Scottish player, believed to be Billy McKinnon, performing an athletic overhead defensive kick up the field to safety, or a bicycle kick to you and me. And you thought it was just Ronaldo or Zlatan who performed those. A nice story, taken from the Scottish Football Museum website, talks of a Walter Arnott. Walter would not have had enough funds to attend the match, so he would watch the game through a hole in the fence at the ground, with a very limited viewing. He became so inspired and in love with the match that he made it his ambition to play for Scotland, to which he did, representing them 14 times and playing against England 10 times. Now the follow-up match for England, again against Scotland, came five months later in March 1873, where the goals flowed. England winning 4-2 at the Oval in Surrey. The only players to play in that game for England that day who featured in the first were Ernest Greenhall and Charles Chenery, who got England's fourth goal. So, with 999 games played, 
Along come Montenegro on the 14th of November 2019 in a Euro 2020 qualifier to be played at Wembley for game number 1000. Let's hope for more goals than game number one. And I wonder if any of the players, spectators or organisers back in 1872 would have given a thought about how the game would progress long after they had passed. Both England and Scotland with national stadiums, professional players playing twice a week for the sums of money earned, and England becoming champions of the world by game number 409. Makes you wonder where England and the game of football will be come match number 2000. If you'd like to see some of the pictures from my journey, please do head over to our social media channels or use the hashtag England's first game. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's certainly been an adventure for me. A lot of people have helped me with the putting together of it. Either me asking for contacts or picking brains, and I've mentioned them where I can. But if I've forgotten anyone, I apologise. But special thanks to Richard McBrayerty at Hamden Park Museum, John Thompson at West of Scotland Cricket Club, Tim Ashmore at the National Football Museum, Michael Southwick, Chris Freddy, Paul McKay, Garford Beck, Brooke Hunter and the extended Ottaway family, Colin Webster at Counter-Attack Game and Stephen Brickwood. My name is Russell Osborne, host of the Three Lions podcast. You can find more episodes at your chosen podcast provider. Please do like, subscribe, tell your friends. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search Three Lions Podcast podcast.